Hi everyone. I'm preaching from the comfort of my own home today and there are some definite perks to this like the fact that I can preach in my slippers and my active wear and I can shut my door and shut out distractions but this is definitely not my preferred mode of church. I miss being able to meet with you all regularly and to meet with you face to face. Sometimes getting together on a Sunday isn't the easier option, but it's so important. I know it's important for me. I miss it when I don't have it. And I believe that it's really important for us as the church when we're able to do it. Because when we become Christians, we become family. And like a family, we are meant to support each other. And that is far more difficult to do when we are separated. Today we're continuing in 1 Peter 3, and the passage that we've heard read is a conclusion of sorts. It's not the end of Peter's letter, but it starts by Peter saying, finally, and so we know that he's definitely wrapping up something. In the past few sermons, we've heard Peter's instructions to the exiled Christians who were scattered around Asia Minor, and that's the part of the world that we now call Turkey. Despite the pressures that those Christians were facing within their marriages, or because they were slaves, or from their government, Peter had told them to live lives that were commendable and to choose to suffer injustice without retaliation so that when people looked at them, they would see Jesus and glorify God. And that is what our passage is repeating today. And it isn't difficult for us to understand. In verse 8, Peter tells the Christians how to act towards each other, in verse 9, he tells them how to act towards those who are putting pressure on them. And in verses 10 to 12, he uses part of Psalm 34 to remind the scattered Christians why they should choose to act like this towards others. So the passage is straightforward. Act this way towards your Christian brothers and sisters. Act this way towards those who are persecuting you. And do it for these reasons. Not complicated, but when you get down to it, the reality is that choosing to suffer injustice is not easy to do. So we have to ask the question, why would we choose to suffer injustice? Well, first, we would choose to suffer injustice so that we could stand in solidarity with our family. The second reason that we might choose to suffer injustice is because through doing so, we can be a blessing to others. And third, we might choose to suffer injustice because it fulfills our calling as Christians. So looking more closely at this passage, in verse 8, Peter says, Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. The word that is translated here as love one another can also be translated as show brotherly love to each other. Love each other like siblings do. Some of you might know that I'm a middle child. I'm the middle of three girls. I have an older sister, Emma, and a younger sister, Alice, and I love them to pieces and I'm very grateful for them. I'm particularly grateful for the way that they look out for me. Because they are my family, they are committed to me in a way that I probably don't deserve. And one example of this is the fact that I am not a great correspondent. You in the church may have started to realize this. We've been away for months and I may or may not have been in contact with you, but I've been traveling a few times in my life. I went away for five months at one point. I went away for eight months at another point. And in those periods of time, I reckon I contacted my sisters maybe twice, very little, which is not particularly considerate. It doesn't show much interest in their lives, which is terrible. And it's not that I didn't love them. I just am not good at making phone calls and I'm not good at initiating that conversation. My sisters probably would have been justified 
in being offended by that or cutting me off. But the beautiful thing is that they didn't. They were still there to welcome me home. And I'm really grateful for that. My youngest sister even has gone so far as to get into the habit of calling me once a week just to make sure that we're touching base because she knows that even though I don't contact her, it doesn't mean I don't want to see her or talk to her. My older sister, Emma, is our family initiator of, you know, family catch-ups, and she's so good at including me and making sure that I'm invited and know that I'm welcome to things, even though I'm really terrible at doing that. My sisters function in a way that is ideal. They make allowances for me and keep showing me grace, even though there are things that I could definitely improve on. And this is what siblings do. They accept that because of our common parentage, we have a shared identity that you just can't walk away from. In the same way, even if you don't want to be associated with me, if you call yourself a Christian and I call myself a Christian, then we are associated with each other. We have a shared identity. We are going to be considered part of one family. And this is important because in this passage, in this verse, verse 8, Peter is saying that Christians need to be a family that is supportive, that stands in solidarity, not that is divided. And this is why he says that Christians are to be like-minded. They are to show compassion, to love each other like siblings. They are to show sympathy and to be humble towards each other. But when you are under pressure, how do you treat your family and friends? The pressure of COVID-19 has tested this for many of us. When I'm stressed, it is often my family and my closest friends who cop the flack. And I'm pretty confident that this is common to human nature. When we suffer, we have this tendency to make others suffer with us. So in this verse, we're seeing Peter giving some tips for breaking this awful but familiar pattern. The good thing is that being like-minded doesn't mean that we agree on everything. What it means is that we share a common disposition or a common nature. And as Christians, we know that that common nature is actually having the nature of Christ. We are united to Christ and we're all growing more and more towards being like Christ. That is what we have in common with each other. We also know that every member of Christ's body is essential. This is something that we're told at various points throughout the Bible. And so we know that when we suffer, rather than making our needs and our preferences the most important, rather than fighting to be cared for first, we can choose to put others before ourselves. If we are compassionate, if we are sympathetic, then when we are feeling pressured, rather than being intolerant of others, we are reminded to try and understand each other's experience and to allow grace and love to soften our reactions and to be more generous and more patient with each other. If we consider other Christians to be our siblings, to be our brothers and sisters, then when we are under pressure, rather than seeing them as insignificant or unworthy of our time or our confidence, we will choose to include each other and love each other like family and to rely on each other for support and help. Last week, Peter and Beck, before the sermon, spent some time talking about pastoral care at Mary Creek, and they reminded us that Part of what it looks like to be pastorally cared for is actually to reach out to others so that they can support us. Knowing that there are others who will love you like brothers and sisters is powerfully reassuring. Because if you are facing 
pressure or threats in your home or your workplace or your city, then having people who you can turn to for support and understanding is strengthening. And I hope that this is your awareness from having been at church with people. This is why we as Christians are called to be brothers and sisters to each other. We understand the pressure of trying to follow Jesus in a world that rejects him. It's also just really encouraging to know that you're not alone. Not only do you have brothers and sisters at Mary Creek, but all around the world, there are churches full of Christians, full of people who share your commitment to Jesus Christ and to the church. And we need this especially when we are scattered and under pressure, which we are at the moment. The second reason for being prepared to suffer injustice is because it means that we can then bless others. 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says that Christians, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are living stones being built into a building. We cannot be a building on our own. We need each other to take up space, to take up position next to us. When we stand in solidarity with each other and with Jesus, we are spiritually stronger for it. And it is out of this strength as the living temple of God and as a holy priesthood that we can then bless others. Because in verse 9, Peter says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Instead, repay evil with blessing. And again, this is not hard to understand. It is just really difficult to do. When somebody insults you, we want to defend ourselves. It's so easy for us to jump to that space of defending ourselves for when we've been wronged, wanting to prove that we are not what that person said or that we're right. And the Bible says in Genesis 1 and 2 that all humans are made in the image of God, which means that all humans are worthy of love and respect. We are worthy of this. There is good reason to want to defend ourselves. But we know that the world is broken. This is the consequence of sin. And this recognition of inherent human value is not guaranteed to us. We can look at the world and see that as a result of sin, great evil is being done by humans. We can even see ourselves doing this evil. We can see ourselves saying hurtful things and holding things back and being deceitful. We may try not to, but even then we still manage to do damage. And so we try and, you know, compensate for this. When I was younger, I remember being told to count to 10 when I was angry as a way of trying to get control of my tongue. And perhaps if you were a more physical person, you might have been taught to walk away rather than uh, retaliating and fighting the person that had shoved you or that had insulted you. And it's not just our parents who teach us these things. When we look at the Bible, it says very clearly that we should reject injustice, reject evil. But what we're hearing in this passage today is that to reject injustice is different from retaliation. And what Peter says here in 1 Peter 3 is that Christians are called to break that cycle of retaliation. Walking away is not enough. Instead, Christians are to repay evil with blessing. We are to act for good by blessing those who persecute us. And we need 
the strength of others to support us as we try and do this. We can recognize that there are times where we are feeling the pressure, we're feeling insulted, and we have to try and get control of ourselves. It is difficult to respond with good in those moments. But this is even more evident when we look at the persecuted church around the world. Christians around the world are facing opposition every day because of their faith in Jesus. They cannot assume that they will be heard or respected. We can to some degree. We can walk out in the street and assume that we're going to have safe, that our bodies will be respected, that we are, you know, will be heard when we talk. But that is definitely not the case for so many Christians around the world. If you have a look at a website um, by Middle East Concern or Open Doors or Barnabas Fund, like the video that was shown earlier, when you look at these, you see that persecuted Christians are in huge numbers around the world, and yet they are living out this calling that we see in Peter in the midst of that persecution. Uh, Peter and I have been running the Alpha course, which has been really wonderful, and I encourage you all to do it next time we run it, um, to invite your friends to do it. But in the Alpha session this week, there was a story from two women, from Mariam and Merzia, uh, who were probably from somewhere in the Middle East, it didn't say, which is understandable, but they were sharing um, in this session how they had been imprisoned and interrogated for carrying and giving out Bibles in their country. And they were imprisoned and interrogated. But in the end, it was because Christians around the world heard about them and were praying for them and were petitioning on their behalf that they ended up being released. The support of their Christian brothers and sisters was so important for the freedom of these women. And this is the case for all Christians. Last month, four more Iranian Christians joined numerous others who are serving prison sentences because they follow Jesus. They need our support and prayers. Christians in North Korea who are discovered and are often deported to labour camps or killed for being political criminals, they need our support and prayers. In Libya, Christian texts and missionary activity are forbidden. In Tajikistan, the government controls group activities so closely that children and teenagers are not allowed to participate in any religious activities. Pakistani Christians are considered second-class citizens. They face discrimination in their work and in their education. In India, Nepal, Myanmar, Christians are often displaced. They are stuck in poverty and denied access to health care or food due to Hindu and Buddhist groups pressuring Christians to leave. When you look at organisations like Open Doors or Middle East Concern, you learn about the enormous numbers of Christians around the world who are facing persecution. It makes us stop and think, what is it like? Can you imagine living as a Christian in Libya, in Tajikistan, in India, if you and your family were being discriminated against because of your faith, if you were being denied access to basic needs like water and healthcare because of your faith, if someone in your family was killed for their faith, how would you respond? Would you bless them. Because Peter says that Christians are to bless those who insult and do evil to them. And when we read the prayers coming from the persecuted church, we see that this is what they are doing. Yep, they pray asking for strength to endure the injustice, and they pray asking for wisdom to know how to respond in those situations, but they also pray asking God to change the hearts of their oppressors 
so that their oppressors might know Jesus too. They pray asking God to give judges courage to do what is right and to rule justly. We learn from our brothers and sisters around the world how to suffer injustice, not through retaliating, but through blessing their persecutors. The reality is that injustice as we face it is probably going to look very different to this. But we can see injustice in the world. We can look at situations and recognise that there is great injustice being done and that can make us feel personally offended or angry. And we are still called to respond in the same way. We're still called to bless those who insult us or who do evil. So how do we bless someone? It's probably um, uncommon for most of us to use the language of blessing, as in perhaps the only time you ever say bless is when somebody's sneezed or something. And I think maybe part of the reason that we don't use this word blessing is because it can feel kind of presumptuous. We can sort of think, well, what authority do I have to bless someone? Don't you have to be a priest to bless someone? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So we are a priesthood, and as this royal priesthood, we do have spiritual authority to bless people. And it is powerful when we bless others. I think a helpful way of thinking about it is like this. When a judge pronounces a verdict, not guilty, in speaking those words, the defendant is made free. And a blessing is a speech act like this, which pronounces good on someone. Blessing is the act of asking for life-giving power to affect someone. And this life-giving power comes from God. So when we bless others, we are inviting God to transform the life of that person because we believe that God is able to transform circumstances and lives. But still, you might be asking yourself the question, why would I choose to bless someone who has insulted me or when they've done evil? Peter says in the second half of verse 9, to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. We choose to suffer injustice and to bless those who insult us because this is our calling. This is what righteous Jesus followers do. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 to 24 says it really clearly. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And if you read the Gospels, you see Jesus suffering this injustice silently. He does not retaliate, even though he was an innocent, perfect in every way. 
Why would we choose to suffer injustice? Because when we do this, we are following our calling to be righteous as Jesus was righteous. And this means trusting judgment to God rather than retaliating ourselves. Why would we choose to bless those who insult us? Because we know that we have been blessed by God. We have been saved from the evil we have done through Jesus who first suffered for us. But Peter does offer some other incentive. At the end of verse 9, he says that those who are called to righteousness and who bless those who curse them will themselves inherit a blessing. And then he quotes Psalm 34, which says, For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what can we understand from this? You will know a righteous person because they will be the ones seeking peace and continuing to pursue it. They will be the ones guarding their tongues from evil and saying from guarding themselves from saying deceitful things. They will be the ones who love life and will see good. And they will be the ones whom God will be attentive to and whose prayers will be heard. And this is ultimately the best incentive for suffering injustice and blessing others. So that God, the giver of life, will be attentive to you. So that you will see that inheritance which has been promised to you as a righteous person so that you'll have this long life and good days. So I'm going to pray for our strengthening and for the strengthening of our brothers and sisters around the world. Righteous Lord, you call us to follow you in righteousness. You call us to love other Christians like brothers and sisters so that we may be united and stand in solidarity together. You call us to suffer injustice like you did and to trust God's ultimate justice. And you call us to accept our priestly title and to be people who speak peace and goodness over the lives of others, even our enemies. We thank you for our brothers and sisters around the world and we pray for them that you will bless them with strength in their faith so that as they face persecution, they will know your presence and show your glory. Make us people who see the power that we have to bless others in your name. Amen.